The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, and we are uh, as many one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate, to be participation to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the cup of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this together, I pray that you would revive our hearts this morning. Um, Show us your goodness and your jealous love for us, and I pray that you would satisfy us with the grace you have for us in Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, We have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians now for upwards of 30 sermons. Um, And we can begin to kind of feel a little bit lost of where we are in the weeds. We just, for the last three weeks, um, spent some time uh, talking about idols. The first kind of half of this passage, we talked about idols of the heart and what does that mean and explored that in great detail and processed that. And uh, I think it's helpful for us to kind of get a, a roadmap check of where we're at. Um, if anybody's on a long road trip, you kind of need to remember, where am I going and what are we trying, <laughs> trying to do here? You know, where are we going with this trip? You know, if you've ever driven across America, has anybody ever done like a long, like across America road trip? Yeah, like a, so, several folks. So you're like, you get to Texas, you're just kind of like, Texas, like you're like driving through it for, after three weeks, you're kind of like, is there like a border to this? country? Does, does we ever get to the other side? First um, Corinthians, if we were taking it slowly like this, we can kind of feel a little bit lost in the middle of it. This big banner of good news for bad Christians, and here we are 30 sermons in, and kind of like, where, where have we been, and where are we going? So let me just kind of remind us where we've been and where we're going, because I think it's going to help us, this passage kind of feel a little bit like odds and ends, you know, and I think a, Paul has something for us to get if we remember where we're going. So if we remember, first four chapters of 1 Corinthians um, is basically gospel culture versus our internal idols, our internal culture that is all messed up. So we have, start out chapter one, Paul starts out and says, you guys are all jacked up in Corinth and King's Cross, and you guys have all these issues that you're facing, and you need to remember first and foremost that the grace of God has changed you, and the most primary thing that's true about you is God's grace active in your life. And what that means is that chapter two, you get in all these sections of all these internal um, desires that go, you were kind of like uh, internal programming that we have from the culture around us and our own sin that comes in conflict with the gospel culture that God's trying to download into our hearts. Getting to chapter three, okay, so how how do we live that out together? What does it mean to live in a community of grace together? And remember, as a part of being in a community of grace, the primary object of your love is not yourself. It's actually chapter four, to forget who you are, to forget processing and managing your own identity, 
and loving and serving other people. So that's kind of the first four chapters, gospel culture on the inside. And then you get to chapters five to where we are now. It's kind of gospel culture in the life of the church. Chapter five is talking all about how do you basically live within and what are the, the borders of the family identity in Jesus Chapter 6, how do you work out the conflicts that you have with each other? In chapter 7, what does that mean to be men and women who follow and live life and get married and are single and are valued in the community of faith? In chapters 8 through where we are now, all right, so now that you're on mission with Jesus and serving with him, uh, you're going to keep running into all these idols and cultural problems that you're facing. That's kind of what's going on. That's a summary of where we are now. And that's all because the purpose of going to where, uh, the purpose of where we're driving in 1 Corinthians is chapter 13. Right? He's been talking about all these ways in which gospel culture changes us on the inside and changes us as a church because the conflicts and struggles and the needs and problems that we face as a church are primarily solved by seeing Jesus and the love of God lived out not only in him but in our lives by going in that direction. So all these internal things in life as a church is to drive us into how do we get to chapter 13, not so that we can read chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, all that stuff. It's not so that we can read that at our weddings, (laughs) but so that that can actually be the internal narrative of our hearts, of how we live and live with Jesus and his people. And the reason that's important to keep in mind is because here we are in chapter 10, and he has all these kind of random statements to say. Flee idolatry. Don't do, idol, don't do that idol stuff. Um, you've got a jealous God. Talks a little bit about the Lord's Supper. Because the purpose of where we're driving here in the middle of chapter 10 to get to chapter 13 is to escape what our hearts would want to get what our hearts actually need. So you have chapter thir- uh, verse 13 here in chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So... Remember, Jay preached for, us on the, preached for us that last week. God is faithful. He will not yet let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. There's movement going on leading into this passage. There's a way of escape that God is leading us towards. And then therefore, verse 14, my beloved, flee idolatry. So you kind of get there's a movement away from something towards something. So that's where we're, we're kind of using this image of driving or going, going a direction. And then he ends with the verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So there, there is some moment of that of like, are we stronger than God? And the way in which we move in this life with God, are we going to provoke him? <laughs> There's a action and movement towards God. So there is, there is a lot of activity going on in this passage that drives us to consider that God is a jealous God. Right? And that is actually where this passage is trying to drive us towards because there's Along this way to get to verse 13, chapter 13 that talks about the love of God for us. This is what love is. Love is patient, kind, all those things. Along the way, we need to remember as we are driving the gospel into our hearts, as we're pursuing chapter 13 with love in mind, that God is a jealous God. We're not playing games here, but jealousy actually means something of value that will reshape who we are on the inside. Now, when I say jealousy... Uh, I don't know about you, but generally I tend to think of like a, uh, a negative connotation. You're like, God is jealous. Like, you mean like he goes through his Facebook feed and he's like jealous of people going on vacations or something like that? Like, is God jealous like that? You know what I mean? Um, or there's a positive jealousy. Like, I really value this person's time. So like a negative example, like 
you could take any day of the week and you could see both of these jealousies on play. So like, let's say like maybe like 5.30 when I get home, um, all of my kids have been jealous for each other's toys and their injustices and everything like that all through the day. And then they clamor upon me to tell me all that they want to tell me about with all the ways in which they have, why does so-and-so get this toy? Why does so-and-so not you know, treat me this way? And then I am just like, I am jealous just to be able to say five words to my wife. <laughs> that's, a po- that's, that's a good jealousy. I want to be able to talk to her. And then I have all these children who are trying to grab my attention, tell me about all the jealousies that they have. So when we say, verse 22, God is a jealous God, it's not that God is oh, struggling over here in the corner. No, this is a positive. This is God is desiring his people. He longs for your goodness and your health and your security in Jesus. He is jealous to get your attention, to bring you focused in, to revive you in Jesus. And so what this passage is all talking about is that our call in this passage is to pursue God's jealous love for us in Jesus. So if you think about the main point of this passage, we are to pursue God's jealous love for us, God's jealous love for you in Jesus. Right. So, how do we pursue this love? If that's what we're driving, we're trying to pursue this jealous love of God, what we're going to do is we're going to just break this down. We're going to go pick up in verse 15. The first thing we're going to see is that God, we need to pursue God's meal of grace. This is maybe not where you would think. How do we pursue God's love for us and jealous love for us in Jesus? Well, in terms of how Paul wants to lead us through this, the first thing we want to do is pursue God's meal of grace. So here we have verse 10, chapter 10, verses 15 to 17. If I can get the right page in my own Bible. Here we are. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. So just remember the context here, what's been going on for church in Corinth. They've had a little bit of an argument with Paul. They've been kind of dishing it out. And Paul is trying to say, okay, we've been settling some of those problems that we've had. Now I'm going to speak to you like mano y mano, bro to bro. Let's just kind of think through this together. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Sorry. That's our next verse. So we're going to pause there. Start to keep going on. He is talking about what we would call the Lord's Supper, right? He is he's holding out the Lord's Supper as kind of like this point to say, all right, remember, everything that's been going on, let's remember, how do we get in on this grace and how do we live within the grace that God has provided for us in Jesus, the life that God has given us in Jesus? How do we do that together? And the background, if you remember from chapter 8, is all that they've been like, okay, Jesus is great. I love Jesus. I got him. I love that he's forgiven me. But listen, I've got some things to settle on my regular day-to-day life. And so I'm going to go to this. Uh, they had pagan temples. Remember, this is, you have to kind of imagine this with me here. They had uh, pagan temples where they would, uh, that was their meat market. So if you had like, um, I don't know, like a Patriots banner over Market Basket, you know, like these are our, these are our idols of today. Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, they come and they bless the meat of Market Basket. And that's where we go and do our daily deals, right? It's kind of like that, you know, I don't know, Jay's not, not buying it, but you know, it, it is a, so 
Jesus plus something else is kind of how they were living their lives. And then he draws them back and says, okay, we're going to take the meal. We're going to take this meal that you're talking about. But I want to remind you that there is a certain meal that God has provided for us that is a way of getting in on God's grace. So that's what we're talking about with the Lord's Supper. Now, anybody who's grown up uh, in a Roman Catholic background, we're just going to kind of pull this out for just a second because um, within our Roman Catholic brothers, they would have this perspective of the Lord's Supper called, the big word is transubstantiation. We're going to get a couple of vocabulary words this morning. Transubstantiation is one of those words. Transubstantiation is basically saying that the, we, when we have the, the cup and the bread, when we... Who, who, by the way, just show your hands. Who grew up Catholic? Like, I, I went to a Catholic church for a while. Right, so you grew up Catholic. Remember when they, they shake the bells during... That is when the, the bread and the cup turns into the body of Christ. Like, the literal body of Christ. It still looks like bread, still looks like uh, wine, but inside it, basically, it's like um, if you were to buy... If you were to take store brand Cheerios and then you sprinkle them with holy water, now they're actually like real brand Cheerios, Right? <laughs> Um, this, is what the, this is how the Catholic Catechism talks about it. By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change in the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ of our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. Right? And then another uh, Catholic theologian talks about it like this. Ordinary food, is consumed be, um, ordinary food is consumed and becomes that which consumes it. In the Eucharist, we consume God and become that which we consume, right? So they are, they're driving this home, right? Their perspective is, this is the actual body of Christ, and this is the actual blood of Christ, even though it kind of has, like, the, brand, the store brand wrapper on the outside. There is actually, like, real Jesus blood and real Jesus body on the inside. So when we read this in chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So is that, that verse, is that validating what our Catholic friends would say? I don't think so, because here's what I want to point out. Verse 16, the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? You want to pick up on that word participation I was stumbling over earlier? Participation. We're going to learn another vocabulary word this morning. Participation there is from the Greek word koinonia, right? Koinonia is this Greek word that talks about fellowship. It's a participation. It's a union. It is an enjoyment. It is a fellowship that says something about our identity. So it's a big, if you've been around the church a long time or if you've been, you're new to the church, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Like we're going to go have some fellowship. Like, nobody else, like, if I go to, like, any of my friends downtown or around the city, we're like, hey, bro, you want to go have some fellowship? <laughs> like, what does that word even mean, you know? It's not, like, a normal word that we use. But it is a word that, that speaks to what you might imagine, excuse me, imagine a Thanksgiving dinner where everybody likes each other and you are actually enjoying not only the food, but just the conversation and the flow of dynamics that are going on. And you get up from the table and you're just like, man, I feel refreshed because we are in this together. That's what is talked about when this word participation is being used. That's the dynamic of fellowship that when he says, 
the cup that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship, a good Thanksgiving meal in the body of, in the blood of Christ, in the participation in the blood of Christ? So when, when he says this phrase, verse 16, verse 17, when he's talking about participation, Paul's point is that you can't have two families. You have one family and one family identity that's going to refresh you and revive you and renew you from the inside out. Right? That is what Paul is getting at. Right? Do you, do you want to pursue knowing God? Well, there is a meal, there is a way of participating with him, joining him at a table, that is actually God's idea to remind you, revive you, renew you in what he has done for you in Jesus. So let me just kind of give you an overview of the Lord's Supper. Right? So we just talked about here, verse 17, there's a, there's a cup, there is the body of Christ, there is a bread, verse, thir- uh, verse 16, there is a bread that is broken, right? We're not going to have time to go back into this, but... Back in the book of Exodus, when the people of God were being saved out of Egypt, God says, okay, listen, we are going to give you bread to eat. We're going to give you bread that has had no yeast put inside it, right? You're going to pick it up, right? When you're making the bread, you're just going to pick it up, throw it in your back of your car, walk right out of town. And listen, before you do that, there's a lamb that needs to be slain because my, my judgment's coming straight through town and I want you to be protected. So they slay the lamb. They put the blood over the, the doorstep, over the top of the doors. That is a signal. We trust in God and his provision and redemption for us and we're gonna trust him that he's gonna save us. So God comes through town, sees the blood, doesn't bring judgment to their house. And they have the cup. The cup is a symbol of celebration. This is, by the way, old, old history is that like the reason that we all kind of like clink our cups together is because we're all taking from the same vat drink together. And if you clink your cups together, it means my cup's not poison just like yours not poison. <laughs> it's, there's a unifying element in it, right? We're not poisoning each other. We're celebrating. So God gives them this meal. Life for you to celebrate. Mercy for you to enjoy that you don't deserve. Food to partake together. All by God's grace, broken, given to enjoy. All right, that's what's going on here in the Passover and in the book of Exodus. You have bread that's given, wine, and a lamb. Now in Jesus, when he comes and he has his, gives us the Lord's Supper, you have Jesus who is the lamb who's broken for us. You have his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. So when Paul says here, because there is one bread and there are many of one body and we all partake of the one bread, what is, it, what is he talking about? He's like, okay, there's one bread and there's one body. You see, when Jesus comes, shows up on the face of the earth, he lives without any impurity. Right, so you think about the yeast in the bread. Right, well, the the Passover bread had no yeast in it that was defiling it from Egypt. Jesus shows up and he has no, he's not defiled at all by the, by the sins of our lives. And yet, because he is creating a new people in himself, he is the bread that's broken for us, right? And we have the cup that he takes. The cup 
is not something that we deserve. There's, no, there's nothing that we've done in our lives to celebrate, right? But he comes and he says, I want you to partake in my victory with me. So, so when Paul is talking about this, he is making a statement that it's not just for you and Jesus, it's for us in Jesus together, right? So we have uh, over here in Ephesians 4, just as a reminder, one of the things that Paul, again, hits at later for the, for the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right, there, there is a perspective that Paul says, when Jesus lives, all that would trust in Jesus are alive in him, and he's our unifying family. Right? He's our unifying name, our unifying identity. So the invite card to get in on this Thanksgiving meal with God is not like for anybody, for any name, like, hey, show up. Like, I'm going to sit with Jesus and God because Jacob's a great guy. Right? Jacob's my pastor, so I'm going to get an invite into God's family. No, no, that's not the way it works. You don't get into heaven. You don't get to be with God because you like me and we're bros. You get in on Jesus' meal because his name is written on the invite card and he sent it to you to invite you to his table. There is one family identity that brings us into the grace of God. So it's just, let me just remind us with all that in mind, I speak as sensible to people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation, right? This fellowship, this Thanksgiving meal, this enjoyment in the, body of Christ, in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ, right? This is the story of grace, right? Therefore, there is one bread, we who are many of one body, for we all partake of one bread. Right, we all have, speaking of Thanksgiving, we all have rituals that kind of reinforce identity markers for us. We all have things that we do that just kind of tell us who we are on a regular basis. Paul is kind of bringing this out as though you do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. There's a regular rhythm here. And we all have rhythms that we do that tell us who we are. So some of us come September, it is we get our Patriots gear on and we are Patriots fans. Like we, whatever the game is, we get ready, we have the um, the cookout, we get you know, whatever your food is of choice, you know, it should be sausages because sausages are blessed by God and he loves to give good gifts to us, right? But some of it might be, I'm a certain type of person that is informed in this sort of way. So I, I'm an intelligent person, so I listen to NPR and I get the NPR perspective all the time because that's who I am, right? I do things on a regular basis to reinforce things that I believe about myself, right? So I'm an intelligent person I'm informed and objective, so I listen to NPR. Or maybe I am an informed person and I don't believe all that liberal propaganda, so I listen to whatever it is, Alex Jones, Fox News, whatever. I am, um, along those lines, pulling a lot of political stuff given the nature of the current cycle of things in New Hampshire here. (laughs) I am a certain type of voter and therefore I do not like certain types of people and I will regularly post about it in a certain way on Facebook as a way of reinforcing my own identity. Maybe this is also for you. I think about myself as too big, too small, not fit, overly fit, and this is how I eat and think about my food. 
on a regular basis. There are ways in which we have rituals that reinforce who we are, right? The ways in which we have rituals that reinforce how we think about ourselves. And so when Paul pulls out this idea of the Lord's Supper, he's going after these rituals of how we would have, how Corinth would have thought on a regular basis about their identity. They would have regularly gone to the temple because they needed to reinforce Jesus plus something will be my provision in life. That's why God has given us the Lord's Supper. And that's why we do the Lord's Supper every week because we need a regular ritual, a regular rhythm to remind ourselves we are one body in Jesus that was broken for us. So what's true about me? I'm a broken person with a broken identity that was broken in Jesus so that I can be loved and renewed on a regular weekly, daily basis. Right? That grace is not just one time when I pray a prayer and therefore it's done. It's actually an ongoing thing that I need to remind myself. Who am I? I need to pursue this meal of grace so that I lean in. So when we take the Lord's Supper, I just want us to, I want to pull this out for us because we kind of talk about it like at times, well, it's just kind of something we do. There's a rote memory. So that there's, re- there's valid reasons that some churches don't do it on a weekly basis. They'll do it on a, on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, because they want to preserve that ritual of identity, saying who we are together in Jesus. I think that it's better to do it on a weekly basis uh, because the problem with it becomes rote memory is more with me and not the sacrament. So I, I just wanted to call us to remember uh, this participation dynamic, verse 16, participation, this koinonia, this Thanksgiving meal. Like that, that is a question for our own heart posture and how we engage the Lord's Supper. Are you leaning in when we take the Lord's Supper here in 15, 20 minutes or whatever to engage as though Jesus himself has invited you to remember I died for you. I was broken in your place so that you could find infinite joy, victory, and love in my own life. Right? That is on us to pursue the Lord's Supper, to engage and receive the grace of God afresh on a regular basis. So are you leaning in with faith to the Lord's Supper? Are you leaning in to receive from as though when we hand out the Lord's Supper and we pass the tray around, as though Jesus himself was at the head of the table and he said, I want this person to be reminded. I want you personally to be reminded. This is the story of grace that has pursued you that you need to lean into, as Paul would say, to pursue this fellowship with Jesus himself. So as we're driving towards reminding ourselves, pursuing this jealous love for Jesus that God has for you in Jesus, this is God's idea. He gave this to you. As real as the cup and bread are, that's how real the Jesus who died for you was and is. That's how real the judgment of God was for you. And that's how real his grace and provision were for you to die in your place. So let's lean in when we take it here in a little bit. Before we get there, there's a couple more things we want to pick up along the way to help drive towards understanding and living in and resting in this jealous love for you in Jesus. So verse 18, so we looked at God, pursue God's meal of grace, verse 15 to 17. Second thing we're going to talk about is pursue God's reality in Christ. Verse 18 to 21, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participate to participants in the altar? What do we imply then? 
that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what the pagans do, what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So, when we, using our travel analogy that we started out early with, which, imagine you're taking a long journey. Which imagine you go and you visit with some friends. Like, I don't know if you ever did this. You visit with friends. I do this all the time. When I was a kid, my parents would have dinner with them down at the dinner table. And then I would go and like poke around in their basement in like their like attic rooms and just kind of like, who are these people? <laughs> What are the books that they have? What are the strange relics that they have? In there? Like my, my grandfather's basement. So my grandfather was a, a World War II um, uh, pilot. And so he had all these like crazy like gadgets and like gears and plane parts in his basement. And I get to know the reality of who my grandfather is by kind of going through his stuff and getting a perspective on who he is. Um, but please don't do that. I mean, come and visit my house because there's really nothing to find. <laughs> um, but... It is, what Paul is saying is, along the way, you need to remember the reality of who you are invited into in Jesus. You need to remember the realities of his world that he has now unveiled for you. And a part of that reality is that there is, as much as when you participate in the grace and goodness of who Jesus is, there is a spiritual dimension of what's going on. That goes both ways. So you cannot mess around with things that would lead you um, away from Jesus and think that you're on neutral territory, right? There is no neutral ground. So he is saying there is, you know, you might be thinking, look, I'm just kind of like having a fun time, but there's a demonic reality going on. That's what he is drawing our attention to, right? Just like there's no magic. And so we got, by the way, hidden behind these pillars, we've got the Lord's Supper. <laughs> it will eventually come out and be unveiled. <laughs> There's no magic in the bread and cup, right? But there's a spiritual dynamic going on. It's the same way. The ways in which we would have Jesus plus something else in our lives that would be our security and defense, that is not just neutral territory. There is a spiritual dynamic going on. Right? For them, it was, remember, just to remind us, for them, going to the temple was not just merely getting food at Market Basket. There was family deals going on. There were business deals going on. There were ways you would get promotions, and there were ways that you would arrange marriages. There was ways which you would work out family business. So going to the, the temple was an integral part of finding security and peace and comfort in life. So it wasn't just kind of like Market Basket with a $2 off sale on the meat. It was Jesus plus something else to be their provision. And so when he says here, verse 19, right, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He's clearly saying like, look, there's not necessarily like in an idol, like this is really hard for us to get our heads around because uh, we don't have like idols just sitting around in, in, you know, on Elm Street. But if you were to imagine, you know, an idol, there's not anything in the idol itself that has like godlike powers, but there is a reality behind it. There is a, so to speak, a demonic hook within it that is going to grab onto you. I, I experienced this actually, it's interesting, when I talk to my friend's recovery center here, they, they are very aware that, look, within whatever substance has become my addiction, 
it's just a chemical reality. But there is a demonic hook within it that pulls me into a darker reality. Right? There is a hook that, con- that uh, so to speak, it's not just merely darkness, a darkness that comes out and reaches back. Right? There is something going on within it that hijacks our motives, that is something that is an oppression that is hard to, hard to nail down. Right? Thomas Brooks has this great line, he that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken with Satan's hook. Right? If you're going to play with these little gods and idols, there is something that's going to hook you back. Right? This is anybody who struggles with any addiction, this is how you experience that. So the reason that we're saying pursue God's reality in Christ is I think that there is a dynamic. We need to remember that when we're messing around with things that would lead us away from Jesus, we're not just messing with neutral territory. There is something that is coming back at us. There is something that will hijack our motives. There is something that will grab at us. There's a uh, moment in the Lord of the Rings where they are walking through a forest and the instructions are, stay in the path. You get off the path, you will begin to lose. You won't remember how to get back to the path. You'll, you'll lose the light to get, stay on the path to get through the darkness. And if you fall in the water, you actually begin to fall asleep, and you're never able to get out. That's a little bit of what Paul is saying here. Remember, there is a path that God has called you to follow in Jesus. And to get off that path, you begin to start being lulled back to sleep lulled into thinking, it's okay. I can do Jesus on my own, and I can do a little bit of some porn on the side. I can do Jesus on my own. I can do the substance on the side. I can do Jesus on my own, and then I can do this little bit of some power play work at at my job to get my promotion on the side. I don't need to be able to trust Jesus for this stuff. I can do this on my own. And what Paul is saying, when you are worshiping those idols, they are hooking you bad. So there's a call to warning here. You need to remember Keep the clarity of our eyes open. Who is Jesus and what is going on here? Because we're not playing a neutral territory. I think the call and application for us is actually to begin to lean into God's people. All these illustrations that he's using, this temple, the meal, um, remember the people of Israel. He starts out, consider the people of Israel. He's calling us to a family identity to lean into who God's people are. Are we leaning into Christ's reality as we see it played out in our brothers and sisters around us? This is a general note. The, the gospel on the lips of your brothers or sisters in Jesus is a truer reality than the emotions and temptations we feel on the inside. What we experience when people tell us what's going on in their lives with God, that is a truer reality for us to live in than all the internal junk that we want to bring to the table. So are we leaning into, to rest into, what God's doing in other people? That's why we have our missional community groups. That's why I would love for you to be a part of them. Because God is doing something to help clarify your reality of who Jesus is, remembering, remember what's true when all we get, we kind of get kind of burrowed into our own lives, well, we're going to get hooked by something that's going to be really hard. All right. We've been going for a while. You guys tracking? We're cool? We get, you got nods all across the room. All right, we're good to go. So remember, we are on this road 
to pursue our jealous God, his love for us in Jesus. We're on this road to remember amidst everything that's going on uh, that would tempt us away from Jesus, all the internal idols that would distract us, that would start out verse 14, therefore, beloved, flee from idolatry. We're going in a direction. We want to pursue God's jealous love. So we're going to end on that note. That's where we're going to end. Verse 22, we're going to pursue God's jealous heart for us. Right? This is, a, I think for me, as I have been processing this passage, this is a part that has begun to come alive for me in a way that um, I, re, the reason I started out with that negative illustration of like, uh, are we jealous about other people's money or jealous about other people's things? Because that's the way I tend to think about jealousy. But verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Like, can, you, can you pick up on the drama of what he's talking about? Like, if you're going towards all these dark things that are going to hook you back, if you're going towards um, these internal idols where it's like, I prefer my own agenda over, the, my, over what other people have going on for them, right? Whatever, you know, the selfishness view of life, right? And he ends, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? What does that imply about God's love for you? God does not get jealous over things that he is indifferent about. God does not get jealous over things that he is rather annoyed by, right? God gets jealous about things that he is precious, that are precious to him, which means, King's Cross, that you are precious to Jesus. You are precious to the Lord. He desires to be with you, to have your attention, to fill your heart with freedom and love and joy, to renew your soul in him. And when we move away, he's like, hey, 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 come on. That, don't go over there. He is desiring your attention. He is desiring your growth and health. Which means that his jealousy for you is infinitely deep, but it can't be provoked. Do we want to live in such a way where we're provoking the Lord to, to be jealous over your heart's attention for him? We, we have a Lord, we have a God who is eager to satisfy his people. He is eager to provide for you. He is eager to protect you. He's eager to bear your burdens. He knows you deeply. He loves you thoroughly, all that you are. He is invested in you. He's committed. He's a bit like uh, somebody who writes a lot of uh, Valentine's notes about you. A little too many. That's how God is towards you. He's crazy mad about you. Not because you're such a great person, by the way but actually rather in spite of ourselves. Because he's the type of God who's crazy mad love about people that were his enemies, that he's now made his children, and he wants the world to see how ridiculously loving he is. He's jealous to do that. He's jealous to satisfy you with him. And you are precious to him. So that's why he ends, are you stronger than he? Like, as though somehow, like, I'm going to be able to cultivate an idol or something on the side, a side gig, with God that is somehow going to be strong enough to be able to pro provide when God lets me down. It's like, are you going to really? Something that God created, a substance, a person, a marriage, a job, whatever, that's going to be able to provide for your identity crisis when somehow your expectations of God get let down 
No, no, no. God has intentionally pursued you. You see, God's love for you, his delight in you, is from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you, were, for you were formed in the inward womb of your mother. Oh, Lord, you made me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, right? So when you were, before you were even, like, born and had that birthmark that was weird, right, or anything like that, God knew who you were, and he made you and delights in who you are. Your eyes, O Lord, have, have seen the unformed substance of my body. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, I was yet, when there was yet none of them. Right? For, so every day on your calendar, from, from today until the last day when you die, God knew before you had that weird birthmark in your mother's womb, he delights in you. You are not a problem to God or something to be managed. He, you are somebody that he has delighted in and enjoy. Right? Psalm 55, 22, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will sustain you because he actually enjoys who you are. He actually enjoys you. He's jealous for your attention. He wants your health and safety. He wants you to be satisfied. He wants your joy. We see this in Jesus' first sermon in the book of Matthew. He says in chapter 6, but if God so clothes the grass of the field and provides for all that they need, right? Think about all the grass that we mow down on a regular basis or all the leaves that are falling from the trees that God knows the numbers of. If God knows how to make trees beautiful with red and yellow and brown leaves, which today is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious. What shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? For everybody seeks after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He is a Father who is jealous for your heart's attention and affection, and he has pursued you in Jesus. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, Paul might say, those who were broken regularly, consistently on their inability to prove themselves. So that we might receive adoption as sons, because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, when Paul says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, here in 1 Corinthians 10, he is drawing our attention that we have a God who is so madly in love with his own glory that he, desire, he desired and desires for you to be satisfied in him, and he is jealous to make it happen, right? He's not just kind of passively sitting back. How's the week going to go? Going to be happy in me, happy or not? I don't know, whatever they want. He doesn't, God is not indifferent to your heart's satisfaction in him. He will pursue you with his love. He will pursue you. He will run you down, so to speak, to, joke, to quote Johnny Cash. He will run you down to make sure that you are satisfied in him, that you are delighting in him, that you are enjoying him, that you are finding your joy and satisfaction 
and all of what he has done for you in Jesus. So, how do we apply this? How do we live out this passage? Actually, we're going to do it. The best applications for sermons are ones you can do on the spot. So like prayer, singing. What we're going to do right now is we're going to go back and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Remember, the call of this passage, are you leaning in to receive God's jealous love for you? Are you leaning in to receive by faith? This is what Jesus did for me. He died for me. That I might be alive in him. So, let's pray. And we're going to hand out the Lord's Supper. Father, as we lean into you, as we are desperate for you, God, as we need your your grace among us, Father, I pray that your jealous love would be tasted and enjoyed this morning as we sing about who you are, as we've heard about who you are, as we partake in the Lord's Supper to remind us again who you are. Lord, would you work among us now for your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.